After weeks of uncertainty and just days before a potentially catastrophic default, Congress agreed to resolve the debt ceiling crisis by suspending the limit until 2025. That takes a major concern for the markets off the table, at least for a couple of years. So what's next for the markets? Since the president signed the debt ceiling bill into law, the S&P 500 has ticked upwards, continuing a slow build that has seen the index rise more than 20% since its low in October of last year. That means we've crossed the line that traditionally indicates a bull market. But is this a real bull market? On the fixed income side of things, the debt ceiling uncertainty sent short-term treasury bill yields temporarily higher. But with that obstacle removed from the equation, the bond market can go back to parsing the latest inflation and jobs data to try to determine whether the Fed's record pace of rate hikes is at an end. And for international investors, there continues to be a lot to sift through, including signs that China's economy is slowing and the news that Europe has entered a recession. So where are the opportunities as we head towards the second half of 2023? Welcome to Washington Wise, a podcast for investors from Charles Schwab. I'm your host, Mike Townsend, and on this show, our goal is to cut through the noise and confusion of the nation's capital and help investors figure out what's really worth paying attention to. On today's show, we're going to devote the bulk of the time to discussions with Schwab's three chief market strategists, who are going to give us a lay of the land after the debt ceiling drama and look ahead to some of the issues that will affect investors. But first, here's a quick recap of the key elements of the debt ceiling agreement. After months of uncertainty, the House and Senate passed legislation earlier this month to suspend the debt ceiling until 2025. It also reduces discretionary federal spending for the next two years, but does not impact defense spending, Social Security, Medicare, or veterans' health care programs. The deal also repurposes about $30 billion in unspent COVID funding and about $20 billion of the $80 billion in special funding for the IRS that Congress passed just last year. It reforms the permitting process for energy projects, increases work requirements for some food stamp recipients, and ends the freeze in student loan repayments that has been in place since March 2020 and has been extended nine times. In the end, it was something of an old-school compromise on Capitol Hill, one of those big agreements about which no one is particularly happy, but each party got some things that they wanted. Looking back at months of unnecessary hand-wringing over the debt ceiling, here are four key takeaways. First, the new law suspends the debt ceiling until January 1st of 2025. At that point, the ceiling resets to the total debt accumulated as of that date and will immediately be up against the ceiling again. But Treasury can then employ its extraordinary measures to postpone default. And as we saw in 2023, those measures can buy Congress an additional several months, putting the next deadline somewhere in the late spring or early summer of 2025. That's well after the 2024 elections and a new Congress will be in place. So for now, the whole topic is off the table and the markets don't have to worry about it again until mid-2025. Second, after all the angst over whether Congress would be able to cobble together the votes to deal with the debt ceiling, the bill ultimately passed with big bipartisan majorities. The count was 314 to 117 in the House, with 165 Democrats and 149 Republicans supporting it. And it was 63-36 in the Senate, with the support of 46 Democrats and 17 Republicans. I think what that says is that 
default remains a red line that a strong majority in Congress just will not cross. Third, the debt ceiling debate proved once again that the most powerful force in Congress is an actual deadline. For weeks, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen kept telling Congress that the default date could come as early as June 1st. But she had a big caveat, saying that because of the inherent volatility of Treasury receipts and outlays, it could be days or even weeks later. Congress just didn't buy that June 1st deadline. It was not until May 26th that Yellen finally put out a specific default date of June 5th with no caveats. And what happened? Within 24 hours, negotiators who had been at loggerheads for weeks announced a deal. And within six days, both the House and Senate had passed it. Going forward, expect a lot of questions from lawmakers on both sides of the aisle about whether the Treasury can do a better job at forecasting when it will actually run out of money to pay the country's bills. And finally, the markets really did not overreact to this standoff. President Joe Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy never wavered from saying that the country would not default, even when discussions stalled and it was hard to see a path to a resolution. And the markets seemed to maintain confidence that the two parties would find a way to an agreement. While there was a bit of volatility in the bond markets, the impact on equities was minimal, and we didn't see the volatility and market downturn like the last time that we came to the precipice of default in 2011. In fact, since May 1st, when concern about a possible default really started to bubble up, the S&P 500 is up a little more than 4%. One other loose end from the debt ceiling drama that I'll be keeping an eye on. Speaker McCarthy said that he would be appointing a bipartisan commission to take a broad-based look at federal spending, including entitlement programs. Most of the details of this commission have not been announced. Who will be on it? How many will be members of Congress and how many will be outside experts? When will it start? Will its recommendations just be suggestions that Congress can ignore? Or will it have real authority? There have been plenty of these kinds of commissions in the past that have approved elaborate reports that have gone nowhere in Congress. Will this one, whenever it launches, be any different? Probably not, but there is no question that both parties recognize that having this kind of drawn-out battle over the debt ceiling and federal spending every year or two just isn't working. On my Deeper Dive segment today, I want to take a look at where we stand now with the debt ceiling behind us. While the country didn't default, the drawn-out debate did bring consequences for the equities market, the bond market, and the global markets. And we'll look ahead at some of the other issues that investors should be thinking about. I'm really fortunate today to have a star-powered trio of guests to help us understand what's going on across the markets. First up will be Lizanne Saunders, Schwab's Chief Investment Strategist. Then I'll be joined by Kathy Jones, who is the Chief Fixed Income Strategist here at Schwab. And we'll wrap things up with a conversation with Jeff Kleintop, Schwab's Chief Global Investment Strategist. So let's begin with Lizanne Saunders. Thanks for joining me, Lizanne. Oh, my pleasure. I always love our conversations. Thanks for having me, Mike. Lizanne, as I mentioned in the opening segment, the equity markets never really seemed to show concern with the potential that the United States would default on its debts. Previous debt ceiling battles have prompted more reaction from the equity markets than this one did. Why were the markets so calm, even as we got within days of defaulting? I think it probably was just the general sense that it was an unthinkable thing to happen. And um, even amid all of the the consternation and the infighting and outfighting, as you well know, Mike, I think there was sort of a back of mind 
assumption that even if it was at the 11th hour, a deal would get done because the alternative was unthinkable. Now, of course, you saw tons of volatility within the fixed income market, which I'll leave that for, for Kathy to discuss. So it just seems that the volatility got displaced from where it was more concentrated in the equity market in 2011, more concentrated in the bond market uh, this year. Well, Lizanne, while there's a lot of fanfare about how the agreement reduces federal spending over the next couple of years, the reality is that the debt ceiling bill won't reduce the debt at all. In fact, it's expected to grow by another two to three trillion dollars during this suspension. You often speak to the burden that the U.S. debt puts on the economy, and this is obviously a sizable increase. So what should we be watching for in terms of impact on the economy? Sure. So even when we were at the zero bound in interest rates, we weren't in a tightening cycle. And I would regularly get questions about the implications of this high and rising burden of debt. My answer was obviously less about interest costs in the short term, but more about just the depressant that it acts as on the overall economy. And if you look across the spectrum of economic measures, not just broad measures like GDP, but payrolls and productivity, you do see an environment where debt growth is faster than economic growth. That in and of itself puts downward pressure on economic growth. And that's not just a U.S. phenomenon. That's a, that's a global phenomenon. Now, though, what matters uh, more acutely is the cost of servicing our debt given higher interest rates. And that is best looked at not as a percentage of GDP, but as a percentage of tax revenues. And historically, right around, give or take, the 14% mark of interest costs as a share of incoming tax revenues, that's when you tend to, to get to what we generically think of as austerity, um, which obviously puts downward pressure on the economy. The, the latest reading I saw puts it at 13%. So we're pushing up against that. Now, whether this time is different, time will tell, but now we face the, the real short-term pressure of the crowding out associated with a higher interest burden um, on the debt. And Mike, do you get a sense that we're getting to a point where they're going to have to be these harder conversations in Washington? I referred earlier in the podcast to the fact that House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is setting up a commission. He wants to do a bipartisan commission, people in Congress and out of Congress, uh, to look at spending and to look at the debt. And we know how those go. You, Lizanne, sat on a commission on, on tax reform years ago, and it's really, really hard to come out of that with actionable items that Congress will actually agree to. So I think this is going to be a huge challenge going forward. Uh, we're going to hear lots more discussion about it. Yeah, one of the things that's been missing is sort of the public's attention on this. So constituents starting to rail. Maybe we are getting to a point where constituents are going to start to say, what are we going to do about this? Yeah, you know, I've always said that the hardest thing, though, is that to the average constituent, you start talking about 30 plus trillion dollars. It just doesn't mean anything. People can't make the connection to how it affects their life directly. That's a really, uh, really hard leap for people to make. And so there just isn't the passion about this that there is about other, you know, countless other issues. Lizanne, let's uh, shift gears to, to the markets and what's going on right now. Uh, in recent days, the market has crossed the line of a 20% uptick from last October's low, and that has brought on a lot of discussion among analysts about whether this signals the end of the bear market, maybe even the start of a bull market, because cyclicals are starting to crank up, inflation is down, 
recession risks appear down, and there's a lot of cash sitting on the sidelines. But I have to say, it sure doesn't feel yet like a bull market. And there are analysts out there saying that we're not out of this yet. So far, it's really been the performance of just a handful of large companies that has buoyed the broader market, and we know that's not sustainable. And while inflation is down, it's still a ways off from the Fed's stated goal of 2%. And then there's the added concern of a credit crunch. So what are you thinking about? What are you watching when it comes to where we are in this cycle? And, and what should investors be paying attention to in the coming months as this plays out? Sure. So I think the market's not out of the woods yet, but that's not the same thing as saying that the market will retest last October's uh, low. In addition, yes, if you're using the very simplistic plus or minus 20% definition of bull and bear markets, what started in October was a bull market because it did hit that 20% point. But even in really bruising longer term bear markets like 2000 to 2002, two and a half years long, you had, I think, two, maybe even three 20% plus rallies in the context of an ongoing bear market that didn't finally reach its crescendo until October of 2002. And, and I'm not saying that's the environment we're in right now, but it's certainly a possibility that the bear market is not over as we traditionally define it, even if we don't retest the October low. You're right to point out the concentration in performance. Now, we have cap-weighted indexes here, the S&P and the NASDAQ, and it's not uncommon for the larger cap names to be driving performance. Where the risks arise is if you see significant underperformance by the other stocks aside from what is driving performance. And clearly, we have this environment where the top 10 stocks represent about a third of the S&P, the top five represent about a quarter of the S&P, but importantly, at least through the end of May, and it's getting a little bit better, but at the end of May, you only had 15% of S&P stocks that were outperforming the overall index. The data we have goes back to the early 90s. That's a record low. Um, now, Davis Research, who has a longer database, they go back to the early 70s, record low in that time frame. None of us have the data to go further, but it's a pretty epic low that started to pick up. That is one of the things that I'm looking for as a continued broadening out of the market down the cap spectrum in other segments other than the AI-driven tech, techie kind of names. And, and that can happen. That convergence, by the way, can and often does happen where it's in both directions, where you, you see some give back on the part of the names that have been solely driving performance, while at the same time, you see some catch up. In fact, that was what was happening October. The indexes like the S&P actually took out their prior June low. So at the index level, it looked really ugly, but under the surface, breadth was actually improving. Now it's the opposite. You know, S&P at a 52-week high, but only 5% of the member stocks are at 52-week highs. So I think we probably need to see it in both uh, directions, but that would be the underpinning of maybe a, a healthier advance longer term. Is the question of whether we're in a bull market or a bear market, or similar to the question that we have about recessions, whether we're in a recession or not, it's more of a psychological thing. It sometimes feels like it's the wrong question to, to ask. Is that the way you think about it? Well, I think especially in this really unique cycle here, uh, Mike, we've talked about it on, on your podcast here, this notion of a rolling recession or rolling recessions, which we've been talking about for 
well over uh, a year, and that is really unique to the pandemic because of the the recovery out of the very short-lived pandemic recession was boosted by massive, unprecedented stimulus, but at a time where all the spending and demand associated with that was all funneled into the good side of the economy because there was just no access to services. That's also where the inflation problem first started brewing. But then fast forward to the more recent period of time, you're in disinflation, if not deflation on the good side. You've had recessions um, kind of ongoing in the case of manufacturing, maybe over in the case of housing and housing related. And now we're starting to see cracks on the services side. Now, I do think ultimately the NBER more likely than not, will declare an official formal recession. But they're always so late. And given that even if it is an ongoing bear market, it's been going on for a year and a half. I don't want to say it's academic at this point, but it it was a lot less academic if we were having this conversation a year ago than it is right now. It's certainly a, a message of really mindful of not saying, you know what, I'm going to stay out of the market to avoid all risk until I know the recession is here and gone, man, that is so far down the road and you miss a lot of opportunities because of just the nature of the market in finding, sort of sniffing out inflection points, not moving when it's all obvious to uh, to the public. Great thoughts as always, Lizanne. Thanks so much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks, Mike. Next, let's get some perspective on the fixed income markets from Kathy Jones. Thanks so much for making the time to join me today, Kathy. Thanks for having me, Mike. Well, Kathy, the debt ceiling drama had some noticeable impact on certain segments of the bond market. For a few weeks, we saw a rapid rise in premiums on bonds maturing in early June due to concerns that they might not be repaid on time. That concern is now behind us, but that also means that the Fed is poised to unleash a torrent of new treasuries. Are you worried about that? We really aren't too worried about it, Mike, even though there will be uh, a big increase in issuance on the part of the Treasury. But most of it is likely to be short term uh, T-bills, cash management bills, that kind of thing. And that's where there's strong demand in the market. But it, it will approach $800 billion, maybe a trillion dollars over the next couple of quarters. Um, the reasons we think it'll be manageable are first that it's been widely anticipated. You know, the things that typically royal markets are usually the things no one expects. But this is something that's been on everyone's radar for a long time. And also the Treasury has laid out a pretty clear plan and communicated it well. Treasury Secretary Yellen has also said they'll be monitoring the situation and the markets for any signs of disruption, and they can adjust their issuance as needed. Um, the second reason is there's just a lot of demand for short-term treasury bills. You know, much of it's likely to come from, say, money market funds, which collectively have more than five trillion in assets. About two trillion of that uh, is in uh, the Fed's overnight repo program. That's a facility where. Uh, you can put money for the overnight market, and that's yielding about 5.05%. But Treasury bills now are paying more than that. So it makes sense for some money to move back into T-bills now that people have more um, confidence in what's going on forward. And in that regard, you know, any sign that the Fed is near the peak in its rate hiking cycle will make T-bills with, say, 3, 6, 12-month maturities look attractive to fixed income investors. 
So it will mean that it makes sense to move out in maturity. So for money managers, money market funds, others, that will likely be a source of demand. And the third reason is that some of the banks have already had plenty of warning about the risk of rising T-bill yields. You know, there are some concerns that the more issuance will lead to higher yields and that could draw more money out of the banks and, and losing those deposits would be a problem. But in our view, it's likely that the outflow deposits will continue, but the pace has already slowed. And since the worries that were generated by bank failures in March, things have calmed down quite a bit. So at this stage, banks, the regulators should be prepared for it. It could mean you know, smaller banks become more cautious about their lending, but that's more of an economic effect than a market effect. The last time we got this close to defaulting, back in 2011, Standard & Poor's downgraded the U.S. credit rating right after a debt ceiling agreement had been reached. That didn't happen this time, but all three of the major rating agencies seemed kind of unimpressed with the debt ceiling resolution. Fitch Ratings, for example, said the U.S. was on a watch for a downgrade even after this most recent agreement was reached. Moody's said that widening fiscal deficits and declining debt affordability over the medium term are the biggest threats to the country's AAA rating. So what do you make of this kind of language from the rating agencies, and what are the implications going forward? Well, I think the rating agencies are making two very good points. First, playing politics with the Treasury market is not the kind of behavior you expect of a AAA-rated issuer. Um, that was the basis of the criticism last time around from Standard & Poor's, and now it's from the others. You just can't threaten to not service your debt for political gain. It's just too risky. And especially for the U.S. Treasury market, that's considered the source of the world's benchmark risk-free security. And the second reason I think that they're making a good point is that the path of fiscal policy is not looking all that good. Deficits are projected to grow over time unless we change something, and combined with higher cost of servicing the debt with higher interest rates, it could mean we aren't as good a credit risk as we have been in the past. Now, nothing about that is really new. It's been a long-term trend for years. So I think this is Moody's taking a stand on the issue. Now, I just want to be clear, we're not at a crisis level by any stretch. The debt looks sustainable longer term. However, there hasn't been any movement in Washington to deal with it for a long time. Now, as you know, both parties have taken defense, Social Security, Medicare, health benefits for veterans off the table for cuts. That doesn't leave a lot of room in the budget to work with. Discretionary spending is a small fraction of what we spend money on. On the other hand, efforts to increase tax revenues have been met with resistance as well, not only for individuals, but for corporations. So even closing some of the loopholes has been resisted. So consequently, there's no clear path to getting the debt to GDP down unless the economy can grow at a much faster pace than our spending, and that just doesn't seem very likely. Yeah, Kathy, I think it's a really important point that uh, even in the context of this debt ceiling debate and the resolution, it's not about lowering the debt. In fact, the debt is going to continue to grow during this suspension. And Washington, of course, continues to be reluctant to take the really hard decisions and uh, address that longer term. Well, Kathy, let's switch gears to the really big news of this week. The Fed hit the pause button after 16 months of rate hikes. So do you think the Fed is done or is a modest hike back on the table at the July meeting? What do you think the Fed is looking for over the rest of this year? Well, the Fed really went out of its way to communicate that this pause may be just temporary and could hike rates again in July or even beyond that. 
uh, the Fed wants the option to tighten more if inflation doesn't keep falling. You know, folks at the Fed don't want to signal that they're satisfied with inflation at current levels because it's still well above the 2% target that they've set. But they do recognize that rate hikes take time to work through the economy. So rather than continuing to just tighten at a rapid pace, they're taking a break. And that will give them time to assess the impact over the last 16 months on the economy and inflation and forecast it going forward. You know, I think the key factors that they're looking at will first and foremost be inflation. Uh, it is moving in the right direction, but there are some concerns about the stickiness of price increases in the service sector. Um, on a positive note, the New York Fed study uh, released a study recently indicating that the sticky or persistent inflation pressures are starting to ease, but the Fed really wants to see that happen before they loosen up on policy. The second big factor for the Fed is the labor market. Uh, full employment is part of the Fed's mandate, along with price stability. You know, in the Fed's view, the labor market has been too tight. Um, that translated into higher wages and strong demand. So they're watching for unemployment to pick up a little bit, slowing wage growth as indicators that inflation will come down. And then, of course, there's a third sort of unwritten mandate for the Fed, which is financial stability. There, there's always some risk that accidents happen when the Fed tightens, as happened with the banks in March. So I think the Fed's going to be keeping an eye out on what's going on in terms of lending and some of the potential risks in the banking sector. But overall, the overarching focus is on those inflation figures and waiting for them to come down. That's in the Fed's forecast, which means you know we're probably at or near the peak in the rate cycle. But it could mean that the Fed doesn't cut rates as soon as the market anticipates. Yeah, it has seemed like the market has been over-anticipating the chances of a rate cut by the end of the year. Uh, those odds seem to have been coming down recently. So the market seems to be getting that message. Well, Kathy, thanks again so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Mike. Well, finally, let's bring in Jeffrey Kleintop for the international perspective. Thanks for being here, Jeff. You bet. It's always great to be on the podcast with you, Mike. Well, Jeff, obviously, we have been focused on the U.S. debt ceiling debate, but the European Union has a new proposal to limit debt that is likely to be subject to heated debate there. We saw how difficult it was to get two parties in the U.S. to agree on the debt ceiling. Not sure how that will work with 27 members of the European Union. But unlike the U.S., the EU debate doesn't have the risk of a default. So what's at stake? Well, the stakes might be a little bit lower than what we're used to here in the U.S. But after the austerity in the form of tight debt and budget controls in the aftermath of the European debt crisis a decade ago, Europe's former debt and budget rules were suspended during the pandemic and the war in Ukraine to allow nations to increase public spending to address the risks. But Late in April, I think it was April 26th, the European Commission unveiled a new proposal to limit the government debt and the fiscal budget deficit for member nations. So the EU governments are now debating the new rules with the goal of reaching an agreement to impose a flexible debt ceiling by the end of this year. The new proposal is that if government's debt is in excess of 60% of GDP, it's got to present a plan to lower it over four years. And that could extend to seven years if it's implementing reforms that increase fiscal sustainability and encourage growth and invest in green and digital transitions or in security or defense, EU priorities essentially. And this contrasts with the rigid former rule where governments needed to cut their debt by 1 20th of the excess above that 60% threshold every single year. 
And you're right, Mike. The EU's proposal will likely be subject to heated debate, which could delay the implementation of the new rules. Germany and the Netherlands have expressed some skepticism that the proposed rules are just too lenient and subject to politicization with a shift from universal rules to customized debt reduction plans with a subjective approval process. Now, in contrast, France and Italy see the proposals as an improvement on the bloc's current one-size-fits-all approach to these limits. France, Italy, Spain, and Belgium will likely exceed those limits per data from Eurostat. So that's why they're more in favor of these flexible targets. So how can the EU structure this plan in order to get everybody on board? The conflict between reining in overall spending while ramping it up in strategic areas vital to the security and sustainability of the EU, like defense and energy, means a flexible set of rules are probably eventually likely. And this would avoid anything like the high-stakes debt ceiling showdown we've seen in the US. The resulting lack of strict budget cuts and the greater flexibility on fiscal adjustments also means that the new rules are not likely to lead to the austerity of the 2010s when forced budget surpluses acted as a major drag on Europe's economic and earnings growth. It's also possible that greater fiscal integration may result from the negotiations that increases the use of maybe collective EU debt to fund EU-wide projects such as green energy transitions, industrial subsidies to counter US protectionist legislation, and joint defense procurements. And the markets would likely welcome that outcome. Well, Jeff, let's switch gears to China. Tensions between the US and China have been high all year. It's hard to believe that the Chinese spy balloon story was just about four months ago. Now we have a Chinese warship crossing in front of a U.S. vessel in the Taiwan Strait. At the same time, there seems to be an effort underway by the Biden administration to improve relations, with secret meetings between top U.S. and Chinese officials recently and the possibility of a meeting between President Biden and President Xi later this year. So what's your assessment of the current status of the U.S.-China relationship? And how does China's slowing economy factor into the equation? What implications does that have for emerging market investors? We are still neutral on the performance of emerging market stocks this year, which seems to remain dependent upon U.S.-China tensions as much as China's continued economic recovery. Chinese stocks are the largest weight in the MSCI EM index at over 30%, so China really matters a lot. Geopolitical tensions seem to have had little impact on China's domestically driven economic growth, but they did appear to weigh on China's stocks. Despite the strong and better than expected economic performance earlier this year, China's stock market fell after the spy balloon controversy erupted in early February. And that slump disrupted a 60% three-month rebound from the end of October until this year's peak in China's stocks on January 27th. Now, Leaders on both sides have signaled that U.S.-China relations may soon thaw as U.S. policymakers schedule meetings with their counterparts in China. In fact, the Financial Times reported that CIA Director Burns made a previously undisclosed trip to China last month, meeting with his counterparts, and Secretary Blinken is scheduled to do the same on Sunday, perhaps even meeting with President Xi Jinping. But Tensions have the potential to remain strained in the near term despite these meetings. Uh, the Biden administration may have an executive order to restrict U.S. outbound investment into China coming in the next few weeks. So the transition to cooler tensions may not be smooth. The momentum in China's economy slowed after the initial post-zero COVID rebound, but more aggressive stimulus and now rate cuts seem to be on the way to help reinvigorate that recovery. 
Well, speaking of slowing economies, it's official. Europe is in a recession, according to the latest data, which showed that Q4 and Q1 each slid a tenth of a percent, making the first back-to-back -back quarters of negative GDP since the pandemic. So what does that mean for policymakers? Yes, the dreaded R word. It's official. There's a recession in Europe. But it also counts as the mildest recession ever, with back-to-back -back quarterly declines summing to just negative 0.2%. And that's because during a typical global recession, all the areas of an economy like manufacturing and trade and services and retail and construction all tend to turn down at the same time. But over much of the past year, it's only manufacturing and trade that seem to be in a recession now, and not just in Europe, I'm talking on a global basis, looking at things like industrial production, worldwide trade volumes, uh, job growth by industry, and surveys of, uh, of business leaders. So uh, I'm calling it a cardboard box recession because things that are manufactured and shipped tend to go in a box. And because demand for corrugated fiber board, that's the stuff used to make cardboard boxes, that's down at recession levels. But in contrast to that cardboard box recession, global services industries have continued to grow as consumers have turned to shopping for experiences over goods. As an example, the airline industry's International Air Transport Association said last week that it's doubling its profit estimate for this year uh, on the surge in flying that we're seeing. So obviously there's some spending taking place out there. So while it's technically a recession, it's a mixed backdrop, which means the policymakers at the European Central Bank may not cut rates while inflation remains well above target levels. The surprise 25 basis point rate hikes last week by the Bank of Canada and the Reserve Bank of Australia after both central banks had paused earlier in the year are a reminder that the rate hike cycle isn't necessarily over despite the recession in Europe and that central banks still remain data dependent. Well, given all that's going on in China and Europe and elsewhere in the world, what's the overall outlook for international stocks? Can they continue to outperform the U.S. stock market? Mike, I like to look at equal weight indexes since they represent the average stock, since each stock gets the same weighting in an equal weighted index. Now, since the end of October, when stocks bottomed, the equal weighted international MSCI EFI index is up over 20%, uh, doing pretty well. I mean, meaning that technical definition of a new bull market. Yet the equal weighted S&P 500 index is up only 5% since then, kind of stuck in a range and showing little progress for the average US stock. In general, the greater the number of stocks that are helping push the overall market higher, the more support the market has. While US and international stocks are up a similar amount measured by the capitalization weighted indexes this year, the average international stock continues to outpace the average US stock, which may offer a broader base of support for the bull market in developed international stocks. Well, that's great advice, Jeff. Thanks so much for making the time today to join me. Thanks, Mike. Great to be on. For more detail on some of the topics we touched on in this episode, check out the Mid-Year Outlook articles that Lizanne, Kathy, and Jeff each recently published by visiting schwab.com learn. That's all for this week's episode of Washington Wise. We'll be back with a new episode in two weeks. Take a moment now to follow the show in your listening app so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what you've heard, leave us a rating or a review. Those really help new listeners discover the show. For important disclosures, see the show notes or schwab.com slash Washington Wise, where you can also find a transcript. 
I'm Mike Townsend, and this has been Washington Wise, a podcast for investors. Wherever you are, stay safe, stay healthy, and keep investing wisely.